This is the Saxo Market Call. Daily insights on what is moving the financial markets. Hello and welcome to the Saxo Market Call. It's Monday, 23rd of January, 2023. And we had quite a turnaround on Friday with a very steep market rally. All the bubbly stuff, the high beta stuff doing the best, of course, as we look at our Saxo equity theme baskets. And uh, arguably, it keeps this sort of 4,000 area in play after what seemed to be earlier in the week last week, a pretty solid rejection of that. We still haven't, in other words, uh, sort of committed in either direction. And this is, uh, you know, sort of sustaining the suspense here coming into this week as we have a big week of earnings ahead, Peter. You've been offline uh, with a very nice uh, trip hitting the slopes last week, Peter. But what, what's your take here as you're as you're looking forward to this week and this batch of earnings reports and and what happened last week? Yeah, <clears throat> I just uh, back from Norway, and I can tell you the, uh, one thing, John. There is not an energy crisis. There might be higher prices in Norway, but they don't have an energy crisis because a lot of uh, public buildings and uh, churches, etc., were, were were lit up um, with lighting. Uh, we don't see that in Denmark, where everything is dimmed down. That's definitely not the case in Norway. So um, they they <clears throat> they are they are in a, at a different spot than the rest of Europe, I think. But they also a key export, of course, of electricity and energy to to Europe. But um, it's great to be back. And uh, yes, as you said, we had a very strong session on Friday. You're showing the S&P 500 futures, uh, Sean, which is which is okay. It's a, it's the broader market definition, so uh, I'm happy with that. But if you looked at the uh, if you look at the Nasdaq 100 futures, it it was up, up almost three percent on uh, Friday, and actually took it to a new closing high since uh, mid December, which is what you, not what you see in the S&P 500. So a little bit of divergent signals there. Uh, the, the sentiment really changed. There was very strong results from, or at least I would say a strong outlook, a confidence coming from from Netflix. The Netflix shares were up um, 9% almost on, on Friday, and they, they reported late Thursday after the close. I think that really that really mustered a lot of energy and sentiment. And we're going into this earnings uh, this earnings week today, which we'll, oh, this week, sorry, which we will talk about later in the podcast. A lot of technology earnings is um, are on the tap. And but we had this we have this positive sentiment now going on in technology uh, in technology companies and we have the layoffs so alphabet announced massive layoffs as well uh, last week we uh, we got layoffs from uh, from microsoft which has been announced basically just left right and center in the technology sector and we have this morning news as well that that the elliot the um, elliot management the active, activist investor has taken over a considerable stake at um, at salesforce really mustering up a massive change of the business they also recently laid off 10% so i think there is a sense of the sense of change in technology companies that they are laying off so so many people that the outlooks if, we, if you look 12 months ahead profitability will be will be will be better unless you really see uh, sales coming down hard yeah which could be from a recession be, could which could be because people are losing their jobs of course the technology space is one area and we did talk about in the case of microsoft how that uh, layoff was actually not that large relative to the incredible growth they saw in headcount uh, yeah. during the pandemic and especially last year so they're already they're simply sort of rewinding a few months of maybe overhiring uh, from misinterpreting how much demand was growing, I suppose, from the, the pandemic stimulus. But you're, I think it's a good slide. The next one you put in there, slide three, this, this sort of maximum confusion. I think arguably the technical activity here in a number of places is rather confusing. We get new lows and yields. Those are rejected uh, last week or, or on Friday at least. We have this uh, sort of 4,000 area in play back and forth over that. And we're all trying to pick up a signal on the economy, which is throwing off some pretty 
confusing signals, the latest being that very weak retail sales report. I've got a couple other things that look weak, the ISM services. And then we still have this, what seems to be a very strong jobs market, despite we have uh, the the hundreds of thousands of tech layoffs uh, in the pipeline. Of course, those aren't registered in the, in, the, in the jobs data yet. But the leading indicators are the leading indicators, and they're still pointing to the weak side, as, as you point out here on slide three. Yeah, and maybe just a very quick question, John. I don't know whether you know and understand how this works, but if you have a lot of technology workers being laid off and they are very high paid and they have had all this stock compensation over the years, could they be in a situation where they don't even bother to to go down to the government offices uh, and, and, and ask for initial jobless claims? You know, they just live off their savings until they get an, a new job? Yes. Because they're... So, sure, so, yeah. So it could actually be the case that you never actually see them in these uh, jobless claims. Anyway, that was just a thought. But you would, you but, would see them in the uh, household survey. Or are you employed or are you not employed? Uh, that's true. And payrolls uh, uh, change numbers from month to month. Uh, that's actually that, that makes that survey even more important going forward, I think. If we look at like a slide three, we have U.S. leading indicators up uh, in the calendars today. I'm just highlighting this uh, maximum confusion because the the month-on-month negative changes we're seeing in this index is sitting right on par with December 2007, which was the the starting point officially of the U.S. recession that started uh, around that you know January 1st, 2008. And if you go back to the late 2007, at that point in time, yes, the housing market was rolling over somewhat, just like we're seeing today. But on uh, employment was still strong, uh, profits were still strong, industrial uh, production uh, and manufacturing was still at a peak at that point. You had a lot of different signs that were actually showing that, you know, on a coincident indicators, things were actually looking okay, but the leading indicators were bad and they typically lead the economy by six months. We have this theme in our upcoming outlook about models are broken. And I've said before that, you know, the leading indicators obviously are fitted to, to past history to get a good fit with recessions and all recessions are unique in some, in some way. So how good is this indicator? I just, I just find it quite interesting that we are sitting at the exact same spot as the last time we had a, a major recession and we have sort of the same vibe with the housing rolling over and this confusion with a lot of the data points uh, sticking in all directions. Um, and then if you look at the next, if you look at the next slide, which I think is the, is this counter argument. So in late 2007, we were all galloping into a financial crisis. The U.S. Financial Conditions Index, the one here from the Chicago Fed, was just powering higher and higher and higher. We were hitting the the, the one value here, which is quite tight in, in a historical context. And if you look at the recent history, we've actually seen the financial conditions ease quite considerably in the U.S. We now have the easiest conditions since February last year so so almost in almost a year and i don't know what you're thinking john but i i i really think that when when we when you listen to stanley Druckenmiller and paul tudor jones when they have recently been on tv they 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 seem quite humble and they say this is this is the most difficult environment they have seen in in their 40-year career in markets and well i i don't feel like i have i have very strong opinions as i always say to you john in our conversations I can I can very easily find your forty indicators that point to a recession, but I can also <laughs> find you a lot of indicators that are pointing that we just will continue to see economic growth. So I'm very yeah. confused. Uh, I think the the 2007 comparison is so difficult because back then you had these enormously leveraged balance sheets on the investment banks, um, and those those stressful market conditions was because we were headed towards a systemic sort of crunch related to their over over leveraging. The system and a big unwind in credit and housing, and the housing was the leading thing that was creating these these financial condition metrics that were that showing so much pain. 
this time around, it's more organic. I mean, mortgage rates are going up. They've, they've gone up to on a scale that we haven't seen, but it's not like there was a bunch of crazy leverage to housing uh, related activity. There was a lot of housing activity, but it was just some of it was pandemic related. It was low rates related, but it is not not a um, a uh, sort of a financial engineering and and these derivatives like CLOs that was encouraging people to take on irresponsible mortgages. So I think that's the the key difference is it's just a very different uh, environment in terms of the where the balance sheet risk is. And it's just a different it's a, like you said, it's a different beast this time around. let's let's uh, but let's not delve too much into that. I think it's just key that your your key points are taken. and what we'll have to do is look at how this develops from here, especially the u s. data which is the only thing we can really rely on is the incoming data here. And, and we don't get a bit much of a data refresh until next week. So we'll now have to rely on earnings reports and what companies are saying until basically next week's uh, payrolls report, et cetera, ISMs. Um, but we did see a rebound and it happened at a key technical spot, as we indicate on slide five. So with the Bank of Japan holding pat, crushing the yields back lower, uh, with the very weak retail sales, we just managed to get to the new lows in the 10-year rates at 3.4% and below. Uh, and then we rebounded Friday, confusing data once again, strong claims. The housing data is not as bad as expected. You indicate easing financial conditions, and they have been in the direction of easing. But on the right, I'm just pointing out that the high-yield credit spread, uh, this is a Bloomberg measure of the high-yield credit spread, just creeping a little bit back higher. So it's maybe an interesting area, that 400 basis point area for that particular measure of credit spreads. Uh, rolling on to FX, and, and Ola's uh, uh, probably about to... I fall asleep to my right here, but we'll get him in on commodities in a moment. But just want to point out that on the FX market, we're seeing a weak dollar. We do have a strong risk sentiment here. Uh, we have an even weaker Japanese yen. And the Japanese yen is driven by the latest news. Of course, with yields rebounding, that's naturally already a yen weakening trigger. But we also have fresh operations from the Bank of Japan overnight uh, offering $1 trillion uh, Japanese yen that's less than $10 billion, just to translate it quickly to the quick maths, um, of uh, special loans, basically extending loans to banks that they ex then expect them to to use to uh, their collateralize. So the, the banks uh, put that up against a bunch of, of their pooled uh, uh, assets. And then they expect the banks to to put this into JGP. So it crushed yields sort of at the that belly of the curve of the Japanese yield curve at a time when yields are actually rebounding elsewhere a little bit. So that's just doubling down the pressure again, once again, on the Japanese yen. The irony being that they could be sort of trying to manage the curve, uh, the Bank of Japan, uh, inside of five years and less. Uh, that seems to be what some are interpreting this as, meaning that they may let the tenure go a little bit more. So short term, yes, it's the Bank of Japan effectively doing QE, building up their balance sheet, uh, setting yields lower. But this could be in, in lieu of uh, sort of managing a, a slow release of the uh, the tenure uh, further down the line, and actually, ironically, a bit of tightening. But you can see the Urian chart there on slide six, just a crazy back and forth in these yen crosses as we're dealing with all these mixed messages, the timing of an eventual Bank of Japan tightening, etc. So I don't think it's indicative that we're going to go flying to the weak side in Japanese yen, but uh, whether it could go another several figures higher, uh, these yen crosses before uh, the next move is seen as, as more tightening from the Bank of Japan. I think it's very difficult, um, but you can just see the scale of those uh, that churning there, and it's very difficult. And then finally, I just wanted uh, on the FX spot, want to go all the way forward to uh, slide ten, just to point out one of the drivers here for the euro dollar. It is that exceptional ECB hawkishness at a time when the market continues or has continued, at least uh, relative to the last couple of days, 
to mark the um, uh, the Fed lower out into 2024 and 2025, expecting that we are going to eventually get to a recession or at least a, a softening enough of the labor market and inflation to see the Fed meaningfully cut rates. And that is uh, can be measured in something like the two-year two year spread. So what will the two-year rate be in two years? And then comparing that for the Europe and the U.S., and so I have that uh, spread and sort of that brownish color there, and it's actually getting close to parity. So think think about this, that the market, uh, how far the ECB has come, is sending out a message that people are accepting in terms of where the ECB will be down the line relative to the, where the Fed will be down the line, that they, this has almost reached parity, this two-year, two-year rate, uh, even though currently the two-year yield spread is more on the order of 125 basis points in the U.S.'s favor. So I think that's one of the key drivers here. You can see from the that chart there, I put Eurodoll in there as well, that these things don't necessarily correlate, but that is one of the key drivers here locally, this uh, forward relative central bank um, sort of expectations spread. All right, let's uh, let's get over to you. We've uh, unfairly kept you out of the conversation here. I'm still here. You're still here. Thank you. <laughs> Glad to hear it. We, we have a, I think, to, to my mind at least, uh, for looking across markets and what impacts everything, crude oil price really banging towards the top of the range here. Uh, but you also have some positioning thoughts on after the latest refresh on the futures position data of the U.S. Yeah, generally it was a strong week for commodities uh, last week, and uh, we're still seeing those uh, China-centric commodities uh, being at energy uh, and copper and iron ore being out in front. And uh, the result of these uh, these uh, increases we saw has also triggered some additional interest, interest from, uh, from hedge funds. And I'm just looking at the... The weekly report coming out uh, on Friday nights, uh, covering the week up to um, up until the previous Tuesday. So that's basically January seventeenth. And as you can see on slide seven here, there's uh, it was generally a week where there were both the prices were we had strong rallies, but at the same time we also had strong increase in in, uh, in net positions across the board, especially as I mentioned in in energy and and metals. So um, I think the or not think that I know that the increase in WTI and Brent. Um, that, that uh, weekly there was the biggest uh, one-week increase since April 2020. That was when the market was just recovering from the pandemic slump. So uh, quite strong buying. That that obviously makes the market a little bit exposed in the short term uh, for any 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 corrections. Uh, this week, obviously, China will be away uh, celebrating the new year. Uh, other markets will be uh, will be closed as well, and that uh, that basically means liquidity will be fairly poor this week. So just uh, just keep that in mind. But uh, but generally, we have we've seen a strong uh, strong market, um, and um, and and yeah, just uh, showing how where that is uh, where that is concentrated. Two markets that has not been attracting any interest, and uh, that's probably interesting from a, from an opposite direction. Now is basically wheat and coffee. Uh, weeks and months of selling almost. Has uh, driven those uh, net shorts to uh, the highest level since May 2019 and November 2019. You can see that on slide eight. And uh, basically, what happens then is that uh, if we should see any change in the technical or fundamental outlook uh, supporting prices, then potentially the the market could be uh, be rallying stronger than you otherwise would have thought, because there is a big short that needs to be covered at the same time. So just keep that in mind. Uh, the market obviously is not favorable right now, but uh, just keep in mind there's a big short in those two uh, two contracts. And uh, just to finish it off, if you are in Europe, you're probably looking at your little app and seeing power prices going up over the next few days, uh, maybe a bit longer. And we obviously do have a have a cold spell coming in, especially hitting parts of uh, the Western Europe. The UK in today's particular hard hit, uh, uh, they've um, basically given order. To, the national grid has given order to three power plants, coal power, coal fired power plants, to uh, to fire up just in case there should be. Uh, needing the extra additional power, and that's obviously because wind generation is very weak. So once again, we just have a reminder that 
the wind power is fantastic on, on days the wind is blowing. It's not for the coming days, and that's basically driving up power prices. Gas is not having the same kind of impact. We are trading a bit higher. There are some outages from Norway, but generally we all know that inventory levels are, are well well above where we normally have them this time of year. So uh, we, we should probably see quite a limited impact on, on, on gas prices, but the power will be somewhat more expensive over the coming days. Incredible. On your overview there, I'm positioning to note that enormous uh, short for natural gas and a reminder of oh, why that can be sustained, even if natural gas prices don't change much, is if, and I don't even know what the forward curve looks like, but if if the forward curve is starts to get into contango, then it's very profitable to to stay short. And as the as long as no natural gas emergency is realized, you, you sort of realize a profit on, on on shorting. Exactly, because future prices are higher. So every time you are rolling a short, you're buying low to selling the next one higher. And uh, right now, actually, overnight, the uh, prices jumped almost 10% because uh, we also have a cold spell in the U.S., but it's 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 around $3. It was hitting $10 late last year, so it's just an incredible uh, yeah. sell-off. We've now, that's there. not a recommendation. I'm just pointing out it's just incredible uh, yep. uh, positioning, the, the short position. All right, back to you, Peter, because uh, what an earnings slide we have there on slide 11. Huge list of companies reporting. Maybe, uh, I don't know if you want to pare it down to a, a couple of focus points, but uh, tremendous market cap reporting this week yeah it is a very it, it isn't a very important earnings week we 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 have in front of us if i was to point towards the maybe five most important earnings this week i would highlight microsoft tomorrow obviously then on wednesday we have we have uh, asml which is the very large the the largest technology company here in europe the, that creates these uh, lithography equipment machines that are necessary for the whole semiconductor industry. Super important company, also as a sort of a, a gauge or, or a temperature, if you will, on capex expectations for the semiconductor industry. And then, of course, Tesla as well on Wednesday. Uh, the reason very aggressive price cuts. A lot of discussions about whether is it a, a sign of strength or is it a sign of weakness. I think there are good arguments for for both. So so instead of being it being black or white, I think it potentially is a, some some shade of gray here. Uh, they obviously are doing it to to prop up demand, but obviously they also have very efficient factories. They they do have a pretty uh, aggressive margin, and it might be it might be Elon Musk's idea that and I, this is the idea I've been talking about before. When you have an inflationary environment, you have you know conditions being more tough on any industry, the companies that have the highest margin have the most strategic flexibility to pressure the weaker the weaker companies in, in the same industry with lower margin because they they can't compensate talent to the same degree because that will you know remove the entire bottom line. So if you have a higher margin, you can compensate people during inflation more. That attracts more talent, so you're actually a long-term winner. There are lots of arguments for both why this is a, is a positive or a negative for Tesla. I don't want to be too too opinionated about the the result yet. I'll write an, an earnings preview today, looking ahead for Microsoft's results tomorrow, and then tomorrow I'll be writing a preview ahead of Tesla's earnings, and I'll try to be a little bit more firm on my view. Uh, but it really seems like here in the short term, at least, that Tesla has turned a corner. And then I would also highlight on Thursday uh, LVMH, which is the luxury giant. If there's anything that is still, I don't think it's a puzzle at all, but if there's anything that is still going strong, it's the ultra rich people of this world. We might have inflation, we might have all these issues, we might have a totally changing globalization, but the uh, the ultra rich, they're still buying their very expensive 
uh, luxury items and and LVMH is definitely the the king maker in this industry and, and a very important company for for European equity markets. So I will highlight that one as well. And then I promise five, and I'm actually a little bit split between whether I want to highlight Intel or Chevron, but I think I'll go with Chevron on Friday, being an energy giant. Very interested, very interested in hearing their outlook on the on the global energy sector, what they are seeing in terms of uh, refinery margins, also what their thoughts are on on the different other energy sources that an oil and gas major can do. So the the hydrogen and and other alternative energy sources, which we know Chevron is investing heavily in as well. So I think that's that that stock is going to be interesting. Also, you talked about it uh, with this these constant. Uh, um, the clients that we're seeing in the strategic petroleum reserve in the U.S. and you know they will stop at at one point, I guess. So um, what, they what it stopped last week? So that was the first week ah, okay. without, a, without an injection. So uh, we we uh, we reached that turning point already. All right, uh, perfect. So um, uh, so yeah, so Chevron is just all about the uh, the other how they see the uh, the prices going from here. And uh, as I've said before, if you look at the expected returns, if you take the if you take the valuations into account and the underlying profitability, there's I still think there's a lot of upside in, upside in, in global energy companies from here. So, um, yeah, we're, we're looking forward to Chevron on Friday. And last to dig into day-to-day, I mean, just a tremendous list of companies and all kinds of different industries. So we'll do, we'll definitely be covering that every day uh, this week. With it being Monday, that's the, that's the light day. So we'll be getting in full swing tomorrow. If we look at the calendar, somewhat the same. Mondays are usually quiet on the macro calendar, no exception to that today, but a couple of interesting data points. As Peter indicated, the leading index up later from the U.S. We also have ECB President Lagarde speaking. It's almost impossible for them to be any more hawkish than they have been already. We've had this guy um, from the the Netherlands, uh, Central Bank, Klaas Knott, also speaking up on fifty the need for multiple 50 basis points for the hikes. Etc. So Lagarde, uh, no doubt, will try to sort of, you know, continue to to maintain that uh, type of hawkishness, but maybe not wanting to commit on the size beyond uh, the next one. But we'll see. Then we have overnight an Australian confidence survey and the Eurozone uh, flash manufacturing services PMI. Interesting. These are up tomorrow. These are the first ones for uh, for January. And uh, yeah, this the the sort of the, the narrative and the theme has been that we've seen more resilience in Europe than was expected. Of course, those low energy prices and power prices have, have have helped things, but let's see if we can nudge above 50 on some of these versus the expectations for just below 50. Uh, further on, we have the CPI out of uh, New Zealand and Australia. Important because these are only quarterly data points. A Bank of Canada meeting, market a little bit up in the air on whether they go for the 25 basis points or stand pad here. And then the first estimate of Q4 GDP out of Friday's PC inflation data, which is always late, but it's there. It's the one that Fed supposedly uses most prominently. And that's up on Friday. All right. It's been a long podcast. We'll wrap it up here and we'll be back tomorrow with the Saxo Market Call. Thanks for listening. This has been the Saxo Market Call. For feedback and questions, reach out to us on Twitter at Saxo Market Call or by email, marketcall at saxobank.com. <laughs>